Warning. The following broadcast is not approved by your teacher, university, politician, or government. Side effects may include skepticism, better reasoning skills, liberty, peace, and an escape from the woke. Welcome to the show. I am your host, L.B. Muniz, and this is the Been Awake Podcast for Better Sense Making. If you are within the sound of my voice and you haven't visited beenawake.com and subscribed with your email address, could I ask you to do that today? What's up? Welcome to a new show. Coming to you from an undisclosed location somewhere in this beautiful country of ours. Haven't been at home base for a while. <laughs> recording these not complaining i like my job and i like doing this a lot too and i'm very thankful to have my new setup um which of course doing the show has inspired me to purchase and put together and it, it makes it real easy i can tell you that much it makes it easy so today we're gonna have i got a i got a packed show i got a lot that i want to cover today in addition to going over the week at beenawake.com four great articles that i put together for you Great piece of content recommendation we're going to be going through that talks about just just how corrupt politicians really are. <laughs> you know, just in case you weren't, if you weren't convinced uh, in the 30-something episodes I've done and the hundreds of episodes that other podcasters have done in this space, uh, this I, I, I'd like to think that, you know, you'll get a better picture of that today. But um, where I want to start, actually, is with a couple of tweets that I put out. Um, and... You know, it's 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 some news, and it's some news that I wanted to share with you guys. It's not really going to change anything about the show. Uh, if anything, it's just going to make me better. So I have up on the screen here a couple of tweets that I sent out, which, by the way, go to follow.binawake.com, and you can find me on every social media platform. I'm posting every day to Instagram and Twitter at the very least, and Facebook if you know where to look. But I've been, um, you heard me talk about it in uh, the interview with Jose uh, Galison from the No Way Jose podcast. Um, you've heard me, you've maybe heard me talk about it in other episodes as well. But I have been um, debating this for a while. And after considerable meditation, I have decided to join um, the Libertarian Party. I, um, I've decided to not only join the LP National, but also the Libertarian Party in Illinois, so I can help bring a better understanding to the ideas of self-ownership and non-aggression. Um, I am doing this in conjunction with the LP, the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus. They have 100% inspired me to do this. I've sat on the sidelines for a while, um, haven't really seen, you know, even though I am a Libertarian, the Libertarian Party didn't really seem like a good fit at times, and certainly in a state like Illinois, I didn't really think it was being—I didn't really think it would be necessary or fruitful um, to be a member. But I've been paying attention to the guys like Michael Heiss, Dave Smith, and others for a long. Joshua Smith. Um, I've been paying attention to them. I've been seeing the moves that they're making. I like the things they're saying. I love the message of the Mises Caucus, and. I was still unsure, and so I reached out to them. They sent out a little flyer. And so Brad, who is running the, um, he, he is spearheading, and credit to him for doing it, spearheading the LP Mises Caucus in Illinois, 
um, he reached out. He gave me a call. We talked about some of my concerns and, you know, nothing is going to change about the way I do the show. Uh, this isn't going to become a show where I advocate for politicians. Uh, this is going to be a show where we, where I give you a better understanding of the world. And I just look at this, I, I look at joining the Libertarian Party as another avenue for me to do that and to help bring my message to a larger audience and make sure that the term libertarian is not a joke. Because these ideas of liberty have, have animated me for most of my adult life. So I'm going to continue to write fearlessly and skeptically at beenawake.com. And I'm really looking forward to the networking opportunity. Seems like a great group of guys. And that's about, that's about all I want to say on that. Um, hopefully this is going to put me in touch with some other great content makers. And uh, frankly, biggest reason for this is, is I, I want to take over the party. And I want to be a part of that. I think that I was just talking about this today um, with a cousin of mine. I have a lot of cousins and most of them are friends. All of them are friends, but you know, it's family. And for a long time, I think libertarians rightfully or wrongly, and you could argue, frankly, rightfully um, in many respects, checked out of the political game. If for no other reason, then it didn't really seem necessary to enter. But I'm not a dogmatic person by nature. That's why I'm a skeptic. That's why I put inquiry before dogma. And so since I'm not a dogmatic person, and because I have epistemic humility, to use the term Gad Sadwood, I can recognize that things change and that there's a time and a place. And to people sitting on the sidelines, which would probably be a lot of people talking or listening rather right now, I, I, would, I would pose this to you. I do think there is evidence to support the claim that now might be a time for people to get more involved. And I don't think that the two major political parties are the way to do it. I don't see, here's, here's the way I see it. The Democrats have abandoned liberalism. The Republicans have abandoned the Constitution. And what do those things have in common? Freedom. Liberty. And that's what the Libertarian Party should be representing. And that's the message that I want to bring to the masses. And that's the message I want to help candidates use to get elected. Because I'm not running for office. That's just not what I'm interested in doing. Because, frankly, if you run for office... <laughs> You get, you, you're, you're rubbing elbows with the likes of Andrew Cuomo. Now, if you haven't been paying attention, I'm kind of surprised. Andrew Cuomo was, was the golden boy, right? Throughout this entire 2020 lockdown, for, throughout the entire 2020 lockdowns, throughout this entire pandemic, he was one of the ones that got to be on TV every single day. His brother, Chris Cuomo, is a news anchor for CNN. Uh, Andrew Cuomo is the governor of New York, if you weren't aware. And him and him and a couple of people really were, you know, were, were like this, were, were the golden childs of, of the pandemic. They got, they were the ones that got to be on the nightly news all the time talking about what they're doing. And of course, by the numbers, I believe New York ranks 50th <laughs> as far as deaths go. Mostly because he kept sending old people back to retirement homes to die, which is frankly just such an unethical and immoral action that, um, it's astounding that more 
it's kind of astounding that that's not what's taking him out, right? Because what's taking him out is there are allegations of of him giving of of him having what is it sexual harassment, sexual misconduct. So I'll, let let's play a little clip here um, on Yahoo News, and this is a news newsy segment. I'm sorry for whatever pain I caused anyone. I never intended it. Uh, and I will be the better for this experience. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo speaking publicly for the first time since three women accused him of sexual harassment. He says he understands that he acted in a way that made people uncomfortable, but he also says that he won't step down. The state's attorney general launched an investigation. Cuomo claims he will fully cooperate. Well, several Democrats, including President Biden, said they'll wait for the results of that investigation before they make any judgment judgments. But that has some accusing them of a double standard. You see some of the Democrats who support an investigation, but some of them, including Senators Gillibrand and Schumer, called on former Senator Al Franken to resign following accusations of sexual misconduct back misconduct back in 2017. In that case, they called for him to step down before an investigation was completed. None have called on Cuomo to resign yet. This is a really interesting revelation, right? Well, I think it is. Because, you know, Cuomo, like I said, was is somebody who is was like crowned, right? There were talks of him entering the presidential election before Biden really solidified his position within the market. There were talks of him running in 2024. And the story pretty quickly went from all the allegations coming out about the fact that they purposefully and knowingly sent sick people to nursing homes where they knew they would infect others to this. Now, frankly, good riddance. There are some who would probably say that, you know, you should be honest and you should, you know, uh, you know, the ends don't justify the means. And I've heard, you know, somebody who I respect like Tim Poole argue that. And he's right, by the way, the ends don't justify the means. But I'm not going to sit here and defend somebody who is a horrible politician and one of the worst tyrants we have in 2021 America. What I want to point out to you with this story is um, is something I saw Thaddeus Russell tweet recently, um, and I have this pulled up here on my timeline, which, by the way, make sure you go at the LB Muniz, M-U-N-I-Z, on all social media. And uh, especially Twitter, that's where I'm going to be the most active. And then I'll also be posting that stuff to, um, I'll also be posting that stuff uh, to my Instagram as well, eventually. But, you know, Thaddeus Russell had this, has a great tweet. And I think it sums up exactly what I want to say about the situation. As much as I want to see Cuomo fry, it is remarkable how Me Too accusations appear at precisely the moment the establishment wants to purge a member. Now, if you're listening to this and you don't believe that there is a quote-unquote establishment of some kind, um, well, welcome to the show. I'm so thankful you're here. Please go subscribe at beenawake.com, read the emails, listen to the podcast, and I think you'll gain a better understanding of what I mean when I talk about that. The establishment basically means like the power centers and the powers that be, right? People who have held political and political power and influence for a long period of time. And that doesn't, that's not limited to currently serving elected politicians, just so we're clear. 
But Cuomo is very much a man of the establishment. His father, I believe, who's, who is Mario Cuomo, Cuomo, is a former governor of New York. And it, right before these allegations took over the news cycle, there was also, and the, and, and the other allegations were coming out about the nursing homes, there was a representative in the New York legislature, I believe, whose last name is Lynn, if memory serves. And he talked about how he wanted to speak out against uh, the, the massive amounts of nursing home deaths, which, by the way, is just horrible. And Cuomo was not alone in doing that. Most uh, Whitmer is another one who killed a lot of people in their 60s, 70s and 80s by sending infected patients back. There are reasons you could get into about the way that Medicare is set up and the way hospital beds are run. But, you know, all of that's all of that, all of that. Most of the rules went out the window in 2020 America. So why wouldn't those? Right. So instead, they, I, I really do believe they purposely sent people to die. Um, and I don't think they cared about the consequences because I think they figured they were going to get away with it. And they are for the most part, because it's not even that that's coming out. It's the fact that he acted inappropriately and seemingly inappropriately. I, I, I'm not going to adjudicate the, um, I'm not going to sit here and adjudicate all the allegations because again, I'm not really interested in the ends. I'm not really interested in defending Cuomo. So I'm going to be happy to see him go, but I want to point out to you, my dear listeners, how easy it is for them to take somebody out when you're a member of the establishment and when you're a member of this political class, um, you know, he's not stepping down. There's going to be an investigation. So at least he has that going for him. So it's not quite to the point where, uh, it's not quite to the point where everybody's going to take him out, but frankly, you know, that could just be because he doesn't want to leave and he doesn't want to admit that he did something wrong with maybe one exception of the allegations. A lot of it kind of seemed like bad acting bad acting on the part of a drunk dude who has a lot of power and frankly i would also if you haven't had this thought before i would really encourage you to ponder and meditate on the idea on, on the question rather why is it that so many politicians have sexual assault allegations made against them what is it about the nature of a somebody who wants to run for politics that means that they are going to abuse their position to, uh, you know, to make women or maybe in some cases men feel uncomfortable. It's also really interesting to ponder the specific ways in which the establishment and the corporate press will take people out. This is one. A Me Too allegation is one. Because let's, let's all be real here. Are we going to pretend like this wasn't, this was the first time it happened, these three women? No. I'm sure that he's made different advances and uh, other inappropriate comments or gestures at different points in time in his throughout his entire career. But that would be my assumption. But the timing is always, and, and this is, of course, a few years after the Me Too movement entirely. So we should be very interested and very skeptical when these out when these sorts of allegations come out as a result, because these this is very tactical. Right. I think I just saw that the one, one of the one of the accusers was got to be interviewed by NBC. Right. So like this political world is so nasty and these people are so power hungry that in many instances, I think, well, no, not in many instances. This is why I think this is why you see so many sexual assault allegations against them, 
because there aren't a lot of good people who last a long time in politics. And that's what you should take away from this Governor Cuomo story. Not that like all men are evil, not that, not that every man is going to sexually assault a woman. But the fact of the matter is that people who want to sexually assault women and abuse their power, they're more likely to run for political office, which is precisely why I think you should treat politicians with contempt. And that would go for any libertarian politicians as well. They deserve it. They deserve no benefit of the doubt just because of their ideology. Their action should be how you determine their worth. So, you know, so that's, again, kind of just a... It's an interesting story making its way. I wanted to bring that to your attention. I'm sure we're going to see more on this. I might write about this this weekend. We'll see. But it's um, it's very. This is this is clearly to me a very tactical strike, and that's why I wanted to bring it to your attention. So let's now let's talk about Monday's post, which was called "Show Me the Monies." Show me the money. Our 1,400 Federal Reserve notes heading your way. So for those who give themselves to government willingly, good news was received over the weekend, over last weekend. And we have an update for that that I'll get to after I read this piece. The House passed Biden's $1.9 trillion stimulus bill. So here's what's next. Now, the bill still needs to make its way through the Senate, but thankfully, Democratic leaders are using a special process where they can remove the filibuster. This is necessary given that the Senate is literally split 50-50 and the House voting 219 to 212 shows a similarly tight voting margin there as well. It's impossible for the average person to conceive of, of what $1,900,000,000,000 looks like. It, it's worth it for you, by the way, if you haven't, if you didn't read this piece, to just kind of go and look at how many freaking zeros are behind $1.9 trillion. I, I frankly, when I was writing the piece, I had to double check how many zeros it had behind it because I wasn't sure. Have no fear, though. Because of that $1.9 trillion, you will receive benefits if you earned less than $75,000 annually last year, but not if you earned more than $100,000. If you're unemployed, if, you have, if you've been sitting on your butt for the last year because you're a lazy SOB, you'll still get your $400 in unemployment as well. So I'm going to quote from a CNBC article here as expansion of the child check tech and expansion of the, this is other, these are uh, other benefits in the bill, at least as it was passed by the house An expansion of the child tax credit to give families up to $3,600 per child over a year, $20 billion for COVID-19 vaccine distribution and $50 billion for testing and tracing efforts, $350 billion in state, local, and tribal government relief, $25 billion for assistance in covering rent payments, and $170 billion for K-12 and higher education institutions to cover reopening costs and aid to students. And also they had a $15 federal minimum wage, which the Senate said it won't do, so that's not going to happen. This is great news. This is great news that our beloved politicians should feel us worthy of $1,400-ish money. We are lucky to have a president like Joe Biden to lead these efforts. Without him, none of this would be possible. According to Statista, I think I'm pronouncing that right, 53% of American households earned less than $75,000 in 2019. Also, according to Statista, 
There were roughly 128,580,000 households in 2019. So if we do some basic math, of the 128,580,000 households, 68,147,400 will receive money to help them. People, will ch people with children will earn even more money, will receive even more money. So if we multiply 68 million by 147,400 by 1,400 and round up, we get about uh, you know, 95,406,360,000 or $100 billion to make the numbers easy. Wow. So much money is being given to people in America who need it. And when we see what percentage makes up the total spending of the bill that is paid by tax dollars or debt for your children to pay, 5%. Because that's what you represent to the government. 5% of total spending. Now, the update on this story is that Kamala Harris has cast the tie-breaking vote to launch the debate over 1.9 trillion COVID-19 bill. So here we sit. I wrote that article on Sunday, I believe. Uh, would probably, I think that was 228, February 28th. I wrote that, I wrote that article on Sunday, and here I am recording this on March the 4th, Thursday evening, and they, the Senate still hasn't passed the bill. But Kamala Harris got to cast her first official vote as the president of the Senate, given that the Senate is 50-50. The vice president, as you might know, is the um, <clears throat> is the deciding vote between that. So reading a little bit from this Fox News article, Vice President Kamala Harris came to the rescue of Senate Democrats Thursday afternoon by breaking a 50-50 logjam over whether to advance President Biden's $1.9 trillion coronavirus legislation. Harris cast the 51st vote with Democrats to formally kick off debate on the Biden administration's signature legislation to address the ongoing pandemic. So basically they have, and this is the way the Senate operates. So I'm, I'm giving you information. I'm not necessarily criticizing what they're doing. So the Senate has to vote to, in order to have debate. And unlike the house where the speaker really has all the control, um, that's not what we're seeing. That's, that's not the way the the Senate operates. So, you know, you had 50, 50 opposed and against, so that's a tie, which meant she got to cast the vote. So now they get to start debate. Now, usually debate would mean them making a lot of fancy speeches, um, but that's not what we're seeing this time yet because uh, Johnson, Senator Johnson um, from Wisconsin, Ron Johnson, requested, and I love this actually, that the entire 628-page legislation be read aloud by the Senate clerks in advance of any discussion on the merits of, of the proposal. Now, ask yourself the question, Will the senator sit to listen to the whole bill? No, not a one of them is going to sit in those, in those chambers and listen to the bill being read out loud. Now ask yourself a follow-up question to that. Did any of the senators read the bill in its totality before, will the senators read this bill in its totality before, before the vote is cast? No. Not a single one of them, or not even their staff. Like, let's say that each, let's say you have a staff of 60, and so you have everybody read 10 pages, and then the senator reads 28. Like, you can get through the 628 pages with summaries. Not a, I, I would posit, and I'm happy to be proven wrong on this, I would posit that nobody in the Senate is going to read this $628, 628 page bill. And if you think anybody in the House of Representatives read this bill in full, you're an idiot. That's okay. 
Go subscribe at beenawake.com. I'm going to give you better sense making and you're going to learn how things actually work in Washington. Now, what Senator Johnson is saying that he's trying to make this a more deliberative process. Um, and, you know, they're basically saying that this is too much money and it is too much money, by the way. Um, you know, they're going to read the staff there and then the senators are going to have 20 hours to debate the legislation and then the amendment process begins. All of this is going to be a lot of fluff, a lot of show. My prediction is going to be we're going to see the bill pass with $1.9 trillion as the total bill. They might they might move some money around and some, you know, some Republicans' palms are going to get greased, or they're going to pass this in a 51 to 50 vote, uh, Democrat, Republican, strictly along party lines, in which case, man, this is uh no, you know, we're we're in some interesting waters as it relates to Washington right now. And you know, it's one of the reasons why I decided to join the LP. And frankly, these parties are corrupt. This in these institutions are corrupt and they deserve to be torn down. But that's what's happening. And don't worry, you're, you're probably going to see your $1,400. I will tell you um, my plans if I get that because I do qualify for at least some of the stimulus, at least the way the bill is written right now. My plan is going to be to buy myself a MacBook because fuck it, why not? So Tuesday's post, I've gotten some great feedback. So thank you to those who have read this so far. I really enjoyed writing it. Uh, this is a very important idea to me, one that I have, um, one that I've used a lot when I've tried to talk to people about, you know, freedom and freedom of speech in particular. So I asked the question, do you believe in free speech? Now, free speech became a political issue around 2014, if memory serves. Before that, if you had asked Americans whether they believed in freedom of speech, the answer would be yes, with absolutely no hesitation. But now, in 2021, if you are on a college campus advocating free speech, you are inevitably categorized as being conservative or on the right, whatever that means. When I was loosely associated with liberty-minded groups at university, they would encourage people to hold free speech events, and I would listen to content creators on YouTube and elsewhere describing themselves as free speech absolutists, which I always kind of thought was weird. It's a strange turn of events to see the way free speech, like most things, have become partisan in their nature. And given that big tech companies are doing the bidding of national politicians, the cry for freedom of speech once must, must once again be understood. Now, there is no better document in existence where the freedom of speech is enshrined than the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. So let us review. Amendment 1, quoting from the, quoting from the Bill of Rights of the Constitution. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now, if you've never taken a course on the Constitution, allow me to briefly point out that there are actually six rights enshrined within the First Amendment, and they are, in particular order, the right to your own religious beliefs, the right to practice your religion, the right to free speech, the right to a free press, the right to peaceably assemble, the right to petition government when they've wronged you. Now, I'd like for a second before I continue with the piece for you to think back on 2020 and let me ask this question. How are we doing so far? How, how did 2020 stack up to what the First Amendment has? Were you able to have are you able to have your own religious beliefs? 
for the most part, the answer would be yes, but I worry that that, change, that that is changing. Were you able to practice your religion in 2020? Not for a bit. If you were, if you were, are, were or are a practicing Christian, a practicing Muslim, a practicing Jew, you were not allowed for a couple of months at least to practice your religion. Frankly, I think it's a failure of the church um, specifically, I'll speak about the Catholic Church because that's the one uh, that's the church I was raised in. I think it's a failure the way most of the most of the churches um, responded to the to the lockdown pandemics. I really do. I think it's I think it's grotesque. I think at a time where people were searching for answers and they were searching and and they looked to God for those answers and for health and solace and peace, which is ostensibly what what the churches are and what religion is there to provide to the people, to their flock. The church was silent. The church's doors were locked. Priests were not allowed to say mass. I happen to know that for a fact. And of course, in the case of the Catholic church, and I'm sure this would, this would bode well, this would bode the same for other, other major churches as well. They got bailouts from the government. So, you know, that's their 40 pieces of silver. Now I know I'm not a practicing Catholic at the moment, so who am I to criticize the church? But I am somebody with eyes to see, and I am somebody with religious people who I am very, very close with, and I, I, I find it detestable the way that they acted. And, and you can sit and you can say, well, we didn't know what was going on. We didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know what was right or what was wrong to do. And I would say, if I was talking to a priest who would dare argue that to me, then what what good are you? What good is what good is your what good are you as a priest, as a pastor, if you're not going to tend to your flock? I'll sit here and say that as the philosopher holding you to account, as the skeptic questioning you. What good are you as somebody who ostensibly wants to care for people? If you're not going to give them what they desire, which is community, solace, peace, you're you're the one who preaches. They're the ones who preach. And sorry, hit the mic there. You're the one. They're the ones who preach literally from the book that says, "Though I walk through the valley and the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me." And this has always bothered me about. about a lot of a lot of religious people and a lot of re- organized religion in general is just how they don't live up to the words that they have in their book. And you know, oh, what about the more fundamental? Yeah, the more fundamentalist ones don't either. And you know, this is you, you can of course say that a book like the Bible is such that you can kind of justify whatever you want from it, and that's fair. And this is me being a, maybe I might be a little unfair, but it it just uh, you know if when I look at the fact that they closed the church doors, they wouldn't let people go to mass, go to church, go to services, be with the people that they care about, and then you also find out that the Catholic Church collected billions in taxpayer dollars, even though they're a tax exempt organization, puts a bad taste in my mouth. So figured I'd take this opportunity just to put it, just to point that out. I don't know. I don't think I've addressed that on the show, but it's something that's on my mind. So in this article, I didn't talk about any of this. That's just a slight digression in the moment. I want to focus on the third right that is um, enshrined in the First Amendment. 
And I would like us to think a little more deeply about why a freedom of speech is enshrined within the Constitution's Bill of Rights. But first, allow me to remind you of what I have written previously. What I've written previously is the Constitution has never stopped a major overreach of government. This includes the First Amendment, by the way, as most Americans accept a necessary abridgment. So if you ask most Americans, they will say about fire in a crowded theater and whether that's a necessary abridgment, they'll say something to the effect, something to the effect of, we have freedom of speech, but of course you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. That's an incitement to panic. Now, this would seem to pass the sniff test. And by the way, the reason for that is that you've been trained to believe it. Obviously, we don't want people to abuse a right and cause a stampede that will hurt or maim another person for no reason. Of course, sometimes, though, there are fires in a crowded theater. And I, for one, would certainly like to be notified of this should it occur. Now, clever rhetorical tricks aside, when we examine the root of this case, the case that gave us this doctrine of you can't yell fire in a crowded theater we see the way in which individuals within government will almost inevitably give the go said government more power when given the choice. So let me rephrase that for you just in case you didn't follow along. People, government agents will always, almost always give the government more power when given the choice to, especially during wartime. I hope that's clear. Shank First United States was adjudicated in 1919. The facts of this case from Oyez.org, O-Y-E-Z, dur read, During World War I, socialist Carl Schenck and Elizabeth Baer distributed leaflets declaring that the draft violated the 13th Amendment prohibition against involuntary servitude. The leaflets are urged the public to disobey the draft, but advise only peaceful action. Schenck was charged with conspiracy to violate the Espionage Act of 1917 by attempting to cause insubordination in the military and to obstruct recruitment. Schenck and Baer were convicted of violating this law and appealed on the grounds that the statute violated the First Amendment. Now, calling somebody a socialist in 1919 is very different than calling somebody a socialist today. If for no other reason than at that point in time, they didn't know any better about socialism. But while they might have been wrong to believe in socialism, Schenck and Bear certainly knew that war is a bad idea. Moreover, and more importantly, they believed, rightly, that the government should have no right to compel somebody to kill another person, and that to do so constitutes slavery, which is why they were arguing correctly that it violated the 13th Amendment. Let me put that very simply, conscription is slavery. Of course, the justices all disagreed. The justices of the case in 1919 all disagreed with your humble author, maintaining instead a deference to government is preferable in wartime. And therefore, these individuals, these individuals were guilty of the crime they were convicted of. It is here we get this supposed reasonable exemption to the First Amendment. Two individuals handing out flyers protesting the war. And that's where we get this idea of you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. 
So what they were saying is by them peaceably standing outside of a recruitment office and saying, hey, dude, maybe you don't want to go to this war. That is the same thing as somebody yelling fire in a crowded theater when there isn't one causing a stampede and killing somebody. Now, I don't know about you, but that gives me pause about the people today. Ironically, many of them socialists who question the validity of freedom of speech. So what is freedom of speech really about? Well, I'll tell you. An open and free society should welcome debate over every topic imaginable. Imaginable, excuse me. By doing this, the best ideas will inevitably remain and the bad ideas will fall away. This is the danger of tech censorship. As tech censorship radicalizes and removes people from the conversation. The freedom of speech, though, isn't even so broad. It's not so broad as to say, well, we can't remove people from the conversation. But let me stay on that point for a minute. This is like the da- this is the danger of tech censorship, is that it, it is going to cont- the more you remove rational voices from the conversation, the easier it will be for the radical, the truly, truly radical, and I'm using radical in this context to mean violent. The more you remove the reasonable people from the conversation, and trust me when I say they have removed many reasonable people from the conversation, this broad catch-all term, the more you do that, the easier it will be for people to radicalize. And and again, radicalize in a violent context. I'm a radical libertarian in many respects, although my temperament is very, you know, tends to be a little more mild-mannered. And obviously very skeptical. But there are certain instances where you could where you could argue I hold radical opinions, but I have a commitment to peace, right? I have a commitment to non-aggression as a libertarian, which is what makes it such a beautiful philosophy. I practice methodological individualism, which we've talked about before on the show. And as such, I understand only individuals can act. If only individuals can act, it follows that only individuals can speak. And as such, only individuals can think. For me, the freedom of speech has always been about the recognition that, try as it might, a government cannot silence the minds of free men and women. Those who choose to remain free, and it is a choice, will always have their mind and their voice. The tyrants and thieves who refuse to accept this truth, this idea, this fact of existence, that free men and women will always have their mind and will always have their voice, are left with only one option, violence. If you go back in the pages of beenawake.com, you will see an article I wrote, I think in November, entitled Take, Imprison, and Kill. And those are the only actions the government institution can take, can do, can perform, however you want to say it. They can only take from you, they can imprison you, or they can kill you. No matter how you spin it, every government action is reducible to one of those three things. Why? Because one way or the other, even if you think it's a good idea, the government is the monopoly on violence within a society. 
It is not the same thing as society. It is an institution within society. Just like Walmart, just like McDonald's, EMV, and all those other bad things. So they can't silence your mind. You are free. You know, you can look at artists. You can look at artists. <laughs> you can look at authors like, um, you know, Solzhenitsyn. You can look at Martin Luther King and his famous Birmingham, uh, his famous letter from the Birmingham jail for evidence of this. You can't silence the mind of a free person. All they can do, the only way they can is through violence. So take heart, seriously though, take heart from this message and remember that for most of human history, you and I couldn't communicate so easily. And while they may take away your profile, they can never truly take away your voice. The Almighty says this must be a fashionable fight. It's drawn the finest people. Where is thy salute? For presenting yourselves on this battlefield. I give you thanks. This is our army. To join it, you give homage. I give homage to Scotland. And if this is your army, why does it go? We didn't come here to fight for them. <laughs> Sons of Scotland, I am William Wallace. William Wallace is seven feet tall. Yes, I've heard. He kills men by the hundred. And if he were here, he'd consume the English with fireballs from his eyes and bolts of lightning from his arse. <laughs> I am William Wallace. And I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You've come to fight as free men. And free men you are. What will you do without freedom? Will you fight? Fight and you may die. Run and you'll live. At least a while. I'm dying in your beds many years from now. Would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives? But they'll never take our freedom! actually never watched um i've never watched braveheart but you know that's the big freedom speech at the end of it right uh i just thought it was fun i thought i would add that into the end of the piece and i would play it for you now it is worth meditating though 
as I sit here and watch it while I'm doing the show. It's worth thinking about, again, just how good we have it right now. War is no longer poor peasants on the battlefield. And war isn't necessarily the atrocities that we're committing in the Middle East, although we are committing those atrocities and it is a war. What I'm driving at is we very well could be fighting a war of information today. If you accept the premise that war does not have to be kinetic, which I have kind of come to accept, it starts to change your perception about what it is we face and how we should act in the face of it. Now, I think that the one way you do it is is through laughter. I think it's through being happy. I think it's through pursuing your best life by not succumbing to political fatalism. All the things that I've written about at beenawake.com. But it's important to put ourselves in the right context, you know? There are so many people who are stuck in this old mindset of Republicans versus Democrats, left versus the right. And in many respects, those people will never get better. And I don't know what I can do except continue to do the show and hope that they hear this message someday. But you're listening. So take heart because... No matter what you might think, things are so much better today than they ever have been. And you don't need to have a negative message to carry some sort of goal forward. Because my goal is freedom, freedom of the mind, freedom of the heart, freedom of action, freedom of the economy, freedom for people. Speaking of freedom for people, you see what Texas did? Ooh-wee. So I asked the question on Wednesday, will Texas become a wasteland? After all, they ended their masking requirements. So let's play from Governor Abbott. I'm issuing a new executive order that rescinds most of the earlier executive orders. Effective next Wednesday, All businesses of any type are allowed to open 100%. That includes any type of entity in Texas. Also, I am ending the statewide mask mandate. Now, I feel it important to point out to my dear listeners that Governor Abbott was the one who instilled all those executive orders to begin with, and I'm not quite sure that he had the right to. When all this craziness started almost a year ago now, 14 days my ass, I went out and bought some neck gaiters and bandanas. These days, I pretty much always put a bandana on with whatever I'm wearing. I spend a lot of nights in hotels. I'm spending one in one. I'm spending the night in one today, tonight. So this means that in the morning when I'm half asleep and I'm putting on my clothes so I can walk into the lobby to get my first cup of coffee, I will pretend to cover my face so I can get said caffeine hit. But I digress. While this warms my heart that Texas is going from 75% open to 100% open, a new battle 
is on the horizon. After all, while the government is not enforcing the mask mandate, individual businesses can and will. I have it on good authority from people I know and trust that not wearing masks in businesses have caused disturbances in different states such that they're, you know, getting security guards to go there. And this includes Texas. It is in these actions that we will begin to see the true legacy of these anti-American lockdowns. Behavior of wearing a mask has become so ingrained that even someone like me, your humble, your humble podcast host, who detests wearing a mask, and I do detest wearing one, I must admit, it's gotten easier to do. It's become reflexive for me to pull my bandana at least partially over my mouth when I walk around inside a business. And for my customers, I will don my blue, but it's even though it's my blue surgical mask. Now, it's not an actual surgical mask because I noticed on the box that we have at our office, it says non-medical on it. So that's just hilarious to me. Because that's by the way why we that's by the way why they call it a face covering and not a, and not a mat and not like a, a medical mask. Because you know they can put a lot of marketing on things, but they can't they can't lie they can't outright lie, so they have to say oh this isn't actually a medical mask by the way, and they have to say this isn't a mask this is a face covering. Yes. And by that, I mean relative to wearing like one of the M95 masks or like actually wearing a surgical mask in, in a medical context in a surgical theater. While I hope that this trend continues, and I think Mississippi and at least one other state have stopped their, um, have, have opened their states up fully and, and gotten rid of mask mandates, I don't see major corporations ending their mask mandates for employees. And frankly, you know, I listen to somebody like Scott Adams, who I have a lot of respect for and who thinks wearing a mask is a good thing for people to be doing. And I, you know, he makes some good points and obviously, you know, I'm sure it's doing something right. Cause like I said, when I say it does nothing, I mean, relative to wearing an M95 mask or relative to actually properly putting a mask on in a surgical theater in a medical context. But one thing I really hate, and I'm some, I mean, I, I just looked, I did almost 5,000 miles last month, last month in traveling for work. One thing I really hate about wearing masks is it dehumanizes people in the service industry. I don't get to look my, you know, my waitress, my waiter, my server, in the, it's kind of, by the way, kind of funny because, you know, we have to move to gender neutral language. <laughs> but so instead of calling them a waiter or a waitress, we call them a server. And that's like just three letters off of being called a servant. But I digress. You know, servers, flight attendants, people whose job it is to make your life easier, front desk agents at hotels, it, it dehumanizes them when you don't have the mask because when you wear a mat or when you, when you wear the mask, because when you wear the mask, you don't have a face. And if you don't have a face, our brains subconsciously at this point, or maybe for most people subconsciously or unconsciously, you don't recognize that individual as a fuel, as a full human. And I think about this 
as I walk around a place and I don't wear a mask outside ever. When I walk around like the city and maybe I'm listening to a podcast, right? Or, you know, if I'm sitting watching a podcast and then I, I'm in a restaurant and I look up and the person on my screen in some respects is more human than the person in front of me. Because the person on the screen, I can see all of their inflection. I can see everything that they're trying to get across. I can see them for who they are. But I don't know who a stranger is underneath the mask. We're almost at a year of these unprecedented restrictions on people's basic human rights. And for anyone with eyes to see, this has been a wake-up call. On a deeper note... This is why I believe a culture of freedom is so important to instill in a people and why I can't stand the Republican Party. Instead of fighting for the freedom they claim to care about, they're titillated at the idea that the God Emperor might run for president. Give me a break. They're also titillated about talking about Dr. Seuss. Now, listen, for the record, I, you know, this woke stuff is why I started this space. It's why I have, it's why it's named what it is. Because I am not one with the woke. I am not woke. I've been awake. I've, I've searched for an understanding and I've found a better one than most people would dare tell you. And that's why you get a better understanding of things when you come here and you subscribe and you listen to this show. So, yeah, it's a problem that they're not, you know, publishing Dr. Seuss anymore. But for the love of God, you still have to wear a mask when you go outside. Children aren't seeing faces. Two-year-olds are getting kicked off of planes. And children are being put in solitary confinement in their own homes because the government says it's a good idea. But you're right. You're right. We should, you know, care about the fact that freaking Donald Trump might run for president in 2024. Give me a break. Conservatives are, have lost the plot, but that's not surprising because right follows left. As Michael Malice said, conservatives are progressives driving the speed limit. And libertarians should take note of that, and we should really think about what that means for our future. So the last, uh, the last segment of today's show, which is what I promised you, um, is uh, Michael Malice had Justin Amash recently on You're Welcome, which is a great show if you don't listen to it. And I was also just saying today, and I'll say it again here, and I frankly, I think he, I think Michael Malice, would he ever to hear this, might hate me for saying it, but Michael Malice has this wonderful, truly, truly, truly wonderful capacity to um, humanize people. Really, I, I, I offer this as a credit to his interview style, is that he has the capacity to humanize people in a way that you don't always see from other interviewers. So last week, former Congressman Justin Amash was on Your Welcome with Michael Malice. I've tried to get across that the theater and showmanship that occurs within Washington, D.C., exists. And for whatever else you may think of him, Justin Amash is a great messenger for this reality. So what we're going to do is I'm going to play a couple of segments from the show and kind of just react to it a little bit. It's a nice thing about, you know, the people I follow is that nobody cares about IP. So let's begin. Um, the first, so people 
had a lot of questions for us. One of the reasons you and I got to talking on Twitter is you seem to have the belief that the term blue-pilled, which you've been described as, which I'm sure you don't ascribe to yourself, has a negative connotation. And as someone who's done as much as anyone to promote the use of these expressions, when you have slang reach the vernacular, it loses specificity and people use things in different ways. What is your perception of the, of the term blue pill and red pill? Well, I, I assume blue pill is being used to mean someone who doesn't really perceive reality as it is. And a red pill person perceives reality as it is. Okay, well, that, that's not the, so. This is my definition of red pill, and I want to know yeah. if you'd agree with me. So, being red pilled is the belief that what is presented mm -hmm. as fact by the corporate press is, in fact, a carefully constructed narrative intentionally designed to keep some very unpleasant people in power. Before we go, before we go on, I, I, it's it's worth it's worth mentioning here. Um, so I. I'd like you for you to play, play along a little bit. I've written about the red pill before. I think it's a useful tool. I understand how some people don't love it given the context, but when I'm using it, I am using it within this context that Michael Malice presents always and every single time. So let's continue. We're going to go back a few, we're going to go back a few beats and uh, just to be on the safe side, we're going to go back 10 seconds. Can we go back 10 seconds. Do you think that that perception of how our media This is what happens when you do it live, folks. ...narrative intentionally designed to keep some very unpleasant people in power. Do you think that that perception of how our media... ...do agree with you? So being red-pilled is the belief that what is presented as fact by the corporate press is, in fact, a carefully constructed narrative intentionally designed to keep some very unpleasant people in power. Do you think that that perception of how our media presents information is accurate? That they that it's carefully constructed and it's intentionally um, deceptive. Yes. Yeah, I think. I mean, I can't say that as a generalization for all media, but sure. yeah, I think that it's largely the case. Okay. Um, okay. So here are the list of like red pills as people go down the rabbit hole and you don't want to take the whole bottle because that's when you end up in bad places. Do you think Americans as a whole are being misled systematically? Yes. Do you think, that's the first one, okay. Second red pill, <laughs> do you think we've been misled since we were in school, since we were young? Yes. Do you think that the people who are doing this are fully aware of what they're doing? Not all of them, but okay. So many two and a half. Okay, and the last one is yeah. this is the one I think you're not going to agree with. <laughs> Given the choice, some of these malevolent actors would prefer us dead over defiant. Well, if the if the question is some, yeah, I think some, but okay. I don't think it's a large percentage. I'm not going to. So. I think that that is a very useful exercise for everybody listening to go through. And what I would hope is if you are, you know, if you only, if it's only the first red pill, right. And you haven't taken all four as it were. And I agree with malice, by the way, that you should never take the whole bottle. You don't have to believe that all four of those are accurate to enjoy the show and to gain something from it. I will likely, by the way, have this conversation 
with somebody in a couple of weeks that I'm looking forward to interviewing. So we're going to, it's, this is, uh, again, I know that for some people they don't like, they don't love this metaphor, but I find it very useful. And I think it's really worth pondering again in that I want to focus on, I want to focus on power centers and people with institutional power. That is where my skepticism is always going to serve humanity the best. And the skepticism that I teach on the show, the better sense making that I do. So that includes these corporate outlets, these corporate journalists, and it also includes politicians, um, people in Hollywood, so on and so forth. Well, let's continue. Pretend that I have any better understanding of Washington than you. I hate it when people think that. I'm sure you get this a lot in on Twitter when people are sitting telling you how Congress really works and it's like, I, I'm here, <laughs> like I'm in my office. Is Congress closer to Veep where basically everyone's running around like chickens with their heads cut off and no one really knows what they're doing? Or is it closer to House of Cards? I'm sure it's a mix. Um, it's it's closer to House of Cards. It's a mix for sure, but it's it's closer to House of Cards, but it's definitely less competent than than either one. Okay. Yeah, I, like can... like when you watch, um, well, when you watch uh, either one, like uh, you watch V, um, it's it's in many respects more ridiculous than Veep. Oh, wow. And if you watch House of Cards, you see people um, coming up with plans. Uh, they want to get a bill passed and they really care about it. And actually, in Congress, generally, people do not care as much about legislation and and um, policies as they do in House of Cards. Like when you watch House of Cards, they really care about getting that education bill through. Um, in real life, they um, it's it's more superficial. Like if they want to get it through, it's because of some other motive. Um, it, you know, they're <laughs> it'll help with their election, and they don't really care about the details. The details don't matter. the the um, The point of the legislation is to drive a particular agenda. It's not about writing good legislation. Yeah, I, I had a speaker when I was in college, and he made the point that you could have one bill and call it the uh, Farm Fairness Bill, and then just cross that out and call it the Farm Freedom Bill, and have it be one for the Democrats, one for Republicans, and the bills in their contents would be exactly the same, and each would accuse the other of this is an outrage and completely un-American, or this is, you know, you hate the yep. farmers. And so, so, I mean, you were very young when you got to Washington. How soon did you realize this is completely different from what I was expecting. Well, I mean, I don't think it was completely different from what I was expecting. Um, I, a big part of the reason I got into politics was because I don't like politicians. Yeah. Uh, I, so I've actually really like Justin Amash. I've met him briefly once, not that I've ever like had a long and detailed conversation with him. I look forward to potentially meeting him in the future and you know who knows maybe even working with him and while him and i definitely have some differences of opinion i think again i think this is really where he shines he does a very because in this interview you know he kind of talks about how much he kind of cares about cohesion and how he thinks that a lot of the instability in government is actually a bad thing but let's let's spend a little time just thinking about what he said there Right. 
So Malice poses the question, you know, is is Congress more like Veep or House of Cards? And of course he says House of Cards. And except for the fact that people don't actually care in real life. Isn't that interesting, right? Because anytime you've seen a politician on television, in a movie, what have you, they're almost inevitably being portrayed as somebody who cares, right? Exactly the way he said, caring is, because in, in House of Cards, and I've only seen the first two seasons, you have somebody like Frank Underwood who is just, who's, you know, obsessed with power, right? He says everything in life is about sex, except for sex, sex is power. And he'll have sex with the reporter that he kills. Sorry, spoiler alert. He'll have sex with his uh, wife and security guard at the same time. He'll have sex with his friend from school, an all-boys school. Because it's about power for him. And everything he does in his life is about building more power for him. And so he uses, in the show, he uses people's good nature as the show would present it i think we could say right the fact that the person really wants to make an education bill happen or what have you and he uses their their desire for something good to bend them to his will and when asked about it when asked when justin mosh is asked about it on the show what does he say it's a lot like house of cards except the people don't care. Now I'm going to play another segment of the show. This is about 40 minutes in. I'd recommend you listen to the whole interview. It's good, but this is just the part that I really wanted to hit on for today's show, which is the theater. Oh, uh, yeah. That's why I'm more so than other people. I think uh, in libertarian politics, I've been, I've been concerned about that. Um, you earlier talked about how people aren't really that – politicians and Washington c- congressmen aren't as concerned about policy as they are about ego. Uh, how yeah. does that reconcile with this thing you hear very frequently that partisan tensions are at an all-time high and that the Republicans and the Democrats you know, genuinely hate each other? Yeah, I mean I'm not sure they're, they're incompatible – uh, why do you think they're incompatible? Well, I mean, or, is the, I don't know if you do. I'm not saying that. I, I'm sure it's. I'm sure it's a huge Venn <laughs> diagram. I'm just asking you from your experience. So the question is, uh, am I hating someone from the other party because they have the wrong letter in front of their name, or am I just hating them because they're getting in the way of me getting in front of that camera and me becoming a big shot? Um, I mean. How much communication is there between the two parties? Like, were you ever sitting? Did you have any friends among the Democrats? Oh, was that discouraged? Yeah, yeah, sure. That's what I'm asking. No, no. Uh, oh, okay. I mean, I don't know if you're going down this thread, but a lot of that is just uh, it's theater. Okay. Right. the The Republicans and Democrats don't really hate each other. Okay. Yeah, like you'll you'll see it here. You'll be at a committee hearing, and these people will be yelling at each other, and then the cameras go off, and they'll go and like you know, <laughs> they'll go and. And uh, you say, hey, that was good. That was great. It was like, I mean, it really is. That's like wrestling. It's so much. Yeah, it's so much more of a performance than people at home realize. It it really is scripted, like literally committee hearings, though, the high profile ones. When you when you watch one of these big committee hearings that like CNN or Fox News is covering, they they say we're going to have a committee hearing. 
those things are literally scripted. Like you are handed a script um, the day before and told to read this script and not to stray from it. And, <laughs> and so um, it created a lot of problems for me when I was on a committee because I wouldn't read their script. <laughs> so I was like, I'm not reading your script. Um, I remember they brought Michael Cohen in and they wanted us to follow a script. I said I wasn't going to follow the script. And so even though I was the second highest ranking Republican, they moved me down the line. They were oh, like, wow. we're going to we're going to put you like, you know, after after a dozen people talk, we're going to let you talk because we don't want you essentially ruining our our performance. performance yeah. You know, we've got like this. Right. So like so the stuff is very scripted, very theatrical. Um they don't hate each other. Some of them are, are friends. They'll go on Twitter and, and say the worst things about each other or on TV. They'll go on Fox News and say, um, if so-and-so had his way, blah, 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 and they, they rip into the guy. And then they'll go have dinner or whatever. I, it's not what people think. And I'm not saying that they're all best friends or anything. Sure. But there is – and I'm not saying that they're all like this. But – uh, but there is a high level of theatrics to it because when you look at Congress, there are those performers who make up um, uh, some percentage of like, a, let's say 20% or something of Congress who are really like, you know, they're on TV all the time. They're performing it. Um, most members of Congress are not well known. Most yeah. members of Congress are just in the background. They'll read the script. They'll go to the committee hearing. They'll read the script, but they're not in it for the um, inter- they're not in it to be entertainers in the sense of like um, they think they can make a career out of entertainment. There are there are obviously members of Congress who can make a career out of entertainment. Sure, there are others who can't. They just don't have the skills. They're in it because it's a good gig. They get paid well, and they don't really have to think. So they follow the script, they do what they're told, and the paycheck comes in and they get reelected. It, you know, again, if you've been listening to the show. Um, so you've got sort of those, those. If you've been listening to the show, this really shouldn't come as a shock. But I always I love playing these clips and I love playing them with a fuller context because I. Because it's worth hearing it from somebody who has been there. And it's really worth understanding that what he's saying is completely accurate. This is, if you, your congressman is likely one of those people that he talked about. Either they're putting on a show or they're just collecting a paycheck. And by the way, I mean, you know, just personally speaking, right? Just personally speaking, I have no issues with putting on a show. I do a show every single week for you good people. And I try to make it entertaining. But at the same time, I try not to lie to you, which is what these people want to do. If you like what you heard today, go to beenawake.com to subscribe for future updates. My name is Albi Muniz, and I am not one with the woke.